Welcome this evening. And um, isn't it nice that after two weeks ago when this building lost power, and then last week when the 49ers lost power, um, this week we can have our nice normal time together where we'll discuss how about 6,000 years ago, a talking snake with legs tricked our first mom and dad into eating forbidden fruit, and therefore today, you can't do anything right because of that. So that's, that's the backdrop of the, the text that we'll be uh, going through in uh, Romans chapter five. So uh, in our series, we are, um, we are working through Romans, and uh, just as a quick primer, how we're gonna be jumping in, we're in chapter five right now, and uh, the apostle Paul, the author of the letter has been um, trying to make, is dealing with the, this fundamental challenge of two ethnic groups, two peoples within the church community in Rome not being able to get along because of historical baggage uh, and prejudices that they bring to the table. And um, the way that Paul is trying to establish unity between these two groups is to increasingly widen the aperture of like how they think about who their family is. So we started out talking about Abraham, the father of Jewish people, and now we're going to get even further back uh, in history, and that's why Adam, uh, the uh, paradigmatic first human, uh, enters this discussion. So here's, uh, here's where we enter for our text today in Romans chapter 5. Uh, Paul says, therefore, just Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death came through sin, and so death spread to all because all have sinned, for sin was indeed in the world before the law, but sin is not reckoned where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who did not sin in the likeness of Adam, who is a pattern of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died through the one man's trespass, much more surely have the grace of God and the gift and the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the gift is not like the effect of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the gift following many trespasses brings justification. If, because of the one man's trespass, death reigned through that one, much more surely will those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, just as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all, so one man's act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all. For just as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so through the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. But law came in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, So grace might also reign through justification, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So that is our text. We're at actually uh, like a pivotal point, like a shift in the story that Paul is telling in Romans. And this is actually too, uh, like this story in particular, this, the role that Adam may or may not play in the current predicament we find ourselves in, is often like a crucial part of the way many of us either do or have shared the gospel or like understood what the point of all of this is. So the um, 
We have mentioned this earlier, like leading up to this series, right? There's this idea of the Romans road. You can find it in like bookmarks and things like that. When people pass it out, it's like a, this is like an evangelism framework where you can use certain passages in the book of Romans to basically preach the total message of the gospel. Um, and so we're bringing this up here, especially because this is where um, like our text plays potentially a critical role in how you view the, the viability of this story. So the basic premise of this story, maybe you have presented the gospel this way, you understand it this way, is you start with, we're all sinners. Then the next part is the punishment for sin is death. Then Jesus took that punishment for us, and if you believe it, you'll be saved. Okay, that is, that's the basic idea that we are talking about here. Um, now, I personally uh, have many problems with that type of presentation uh, of the gospel. Um, I think that, number one, I think it makes it look like your salvation from sin is the main point of Romans, or perhaps the main point of the Bible, or perhaps the main point of life, period. And I think that that's wrong. Uh, I think it also basically erases Israel from the gospel story. Like, anytime you can tell the gospel story without, like, the thousands of years leading up to Jesus, I think something is off uh, in that narrative. It also minimizes the role that the resurrection plays, right? Like in this narrative, it's unclear uh, what, what that does. What was the added benefit to that aspect of the story? Um, it also focuses on believing the right things as the path to salvation. And I could go on. We're going to stop here. It's not about the Romans road. But the, the point is like, this is actually a very common, uh, a common narrative. I have, I have used this narrative in the past um, both for like to understand salvation myself and how I preach it to others. But um, here's the thing too, like the, the part where Adam comes into the story. For many people, a literal historical first man and woman as the parents of everyone alive is critical to their understanding of faith and the gospel and the story that the Bible is telling. So there is, um, there, and I think a big part of that actually comes from this, the, this premise that like where you read in Paul's argument, therefore, just as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all, so one man's act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all. It's this idea that if, this is the concern, if Adam is not a literal person, and his original or first sin wasn't literal, then who's to say that Jesus was not a literal person or that his resurrection was not literal, right? So there's a through line for a lot of people, a logical connection where if you lose the one, you may lose the other as well. And we're going to walk through how that concern might play out and uh, better ways of thinking about it. And I will admit, too, I think there is, there is something uh, compelling and beautiful and intuitive about this idea that all of us share the same common ancestor, like that we all have ultimately the same parents and that's the basis for unity that we have. This is uh, this, the kind of intuition uh, is so compelling, like you can see the Apostle Paul used 
use that type of language in other places. So there's a sermon that he's giving to a Greek audience that Luke records in the book of Acts, where part of the premise that he starts to establish a base of unity between himself and Jewish people and the audience that he's preaching to is he says, from one man, God made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, right? So there's this, this really cool idea that, um, that like that, that's where our sense of familyhood, uh, collective sense of familyhood comes from. And this is like I even recently like felt this this kind of unity where we were at our uh, our small group at Ling and Darren's house, and there was one point where there were. Uh, all, all the different kinds of Asians sitting around the table, and we were all remarking how we all come from parents who kept the uh, the you know uh, their sewing materials inside a Danish cookie tin. And I thought I reflected on that, thinking like this is clear evidence that we must all have come from the same immigrant parents. All Asians are descended from that. Like what a what a beautiful uh, sense of unity that that we can have because of that. The the thing that we do need to sort out, like there's two things, like big things that I think we need to sort out to help make sense of like what's, what is a, what's the, a healthier, um, truer way forward to think about our relationship to this story that Paul is telling uh, about Adam here. And there are, there are two parts to it. One is we do need to, like we should talk about like was Adam even real? And that real in the sense that the, the way the story goes, um, you know, they're like, as I premised earlier, there were two human beings that God made, uh, and those were the two human beings who uh, are the ancestors of all of us. The, um, this is, to me though, I think one of the ways this can be challenging for biblical interpreters is the idea that like, did we all come from the same two people is a scientific question. And scientists have looked into this a great deal. So, and they look at it from a bunch of different ways. Like one is to try to trace our own like history, genetic history back to see if there is this kind of common origin that, that we could speak of. There's also like other ways of asking like, could two humans even account for all of the diversity that we have today? And they run models saying like, hey, if there were just two people left on earth, could we repopulate the human species? And of course, you know, your response would be in this economy, how can you afford that many kids? So it's, clearly, we wouldn't be able to do that uh, moving forward. But the, um, the, however, you um, like try to interpret the story of Adam and Eve. The scientific consensus is clear: we do not share the same two parents. Like all of the diversity that exists in humanity cannot be explained by that. It doesn't look like the uh, population of humans was ever anywhere near as small as just two people. So with that, from that, like starting from that premise, I know that many of us will try to be like, okay, well, um, what if when Paul was saying that he actually meant that not, it's not like Adam and Eve were like the only two people literally that existed, but they they were like the representative leaders of the first community of, uh, of people, or, or that, um, uh, that Adam was uh, chosen as like the spiritual head of that community, or that the, they're really just talking about uh, Adam and Eve as the first two Israelites amidst a wider world, uh, or that at some point um, God chose one early hominid to first reveal God's image or breathe God's image into, and that's how that happened. So, you could do all of those things, but what I would say is at the end of the day, 
what you are still doing is reading your modern sensibilities of trying to make that text work onto Paul's mind. I think the, the plainest reading in this case is actually the, the most accurate one, that the Apostle Paul, like many people in his community, operated from the assumption that all of our ancestors came from the same two people. And for him, that was his basis for this beautiful truth that we all champion today, which is that is the source of our commonality, our humanity, and why we owe it to each other to extend love and mercy and grace and respect. If that sounds alarming to you and like things may start unraveling for like how you understand the gospel, let me like remind you, we've actually talked about the way that we have to grapple with the way biblical writers understood the ancient world before. So we've talked about how this is actually this model that I have up on the screen in Genesis itself. This is how the writers of Genesis clearly envisioned like what the earth looked like. Not like we believe it today, where it's a sphere, ro a sphere's rock, like orbiting around the sun, and the sun is orbiting around the, all these other things, and that like you go on and on from there. They, you know, if you read a natural reading of Genesis 1 and 2 would say there is, uh, you know, the earth was on a solid rock, there was a dome above it, there was water above where the rain came down, there was water below where the oceans came from. That's, that's the, the premise that they operated from. Now, we know today that that's not true, but that has not shaken many of our belief or understanding of the truth that the writers are trying to tell through Genesis. I would argue that we're going to have to do the same thing when we, uh, when we think about the scientific origins of people. And this is, again, this is something that we will, like, it's, it's within God's just normal way of interacting with us, where uh, it is, it is par for the course for God to speak through us in any generation that like doing so necessarily requires working with our assumptions of like how the world and the universe works. So for example, if I said today, um, we are all one people sharing this one universe and there is one God of this universe. Many of you would be like, oh, that's beautiful. That's extremely, like, uh, that, that, is, that, that truth can last forever. But then some of you are like, no, actually, Pastor Omer, I watched the PBS documentary, uh, Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, and that sorcerer and that witch said that the multiverse is real. So what is it? Does, is there just one universe that this God is the universe of? Is this God the, the God of the other multiverses? Blah, 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 right? And so you could say, like, a thousand years from now, you'd be like, wow, like that, they're, the way they talked about God as the God of the universe was wrong. Does that mean the truth, the ultimate truth that I'm sharing today is inaccurate? No. We're assuming our current understanding of how the world works. And Bible writers do that all the time and uh, bless God for choosing to work with us even through our imperfections before waiting to talk to us uh, until we had like a perfect understanding of how the universe works. So this is, this is the kind of like, you know, the, the way I would ask you to like, you know, put this way of this lens of thinking on where we're, where we're asking ourselves, what is the actual truth or the point that God, the writers of Genesis and Paul reinterpreting the writers of Genesis are trying to accomplish through this text? 
And so that gets us to probably the more substantive, like theological question that often comes up when we talk about this text. And this is, is it all Adam's fault? That seems to be what the Apostle Paul is saying, maybe, for, for some of you. And that type of question actually might, uh, might feel uh, familiar uh, to some of you where uh, you would think like, okay, I th- I've heard this, this idea before where this is tied to this concept of original sin, uh, or as uh, theologians have also called it, total hereditary depravity, the latter of which sounds like something you would diagnose yourself with on WebMD. Like, oh, this is how I have total hereditary. I don't know if that, not that much, partial hereditary depravity is what, what I have. The idea there is that, that in Adam and Eve sinning, we became cursed to have a will that cannot do anything right without God's intervention. And that like, you know, you could say genetically and spiritually, we were all present in Adam and Eve when that happened. Because they, they are our only, like they're the two parents who are the, the source of it all. So again, and this for, for many people, this is like a core doctrine to like how they understand people, how they understand the, the world, right? This, like I see it even come up in just like just many conversations over the years, matter of factly, the way that it, um, the way that it influences how people interpret human behavior. You know, this doctrine also leads a lot of like parents of young kids to look at their child when they're throwing a tantrum and say, well, see, that's just their sinful nature. Like, that is something that, that people say, to which I always like, I always want to respond like, okay, hold on. I know you're mad at them for throwing a tantrum, but don't put that theological baggage on them. Babies are not selfish and sinful. They're stupid. There's a difference, right? <laughs> see, we just, we got to think carefully through through the issue, the um, this issue. And again, I'm not going to uh, going to give you the answer to a debate that has been like deeply a part of the Protestant tradition for for centuries and maybe a millennium, depending on how, like how far back you think the uh, the this problem really took shape. Um, but I will say, I mean, I have, I've got an opinion on whether that's an, this is an accurate way of describing Genesis itself of Paul's view of Genesis, of the argument that Paul is making here, and you're going to have to listen to me give that opinion, and then we can, you know, we can obviously always continue to grapple with it. The, the big theological debate, just this for context, because we're talking about it, I feel like you should know, the, the big theological debate that this framework falls within is like what we t- traditionally call like Calvinism versus Arminianism, where, where this, um, this, these notions of original sin and total hereditary depravity were um, like, they grew from uh, much of like John Calvin, a uh, 16th century um, Protestant um, did. And then of course you saw that Calvinists versus Arminians would mean of course that his opponents were Arminians. Um, and you're like, wait, why? What did Arminians have against John Calvin? What did John Calvin have against Arminians? Uh, no, it's actually Jacobus Arminius. That is the other theologian uh, from whom like there, these debates take shape. This debate, all, like it centers around all kinds of concepts like predestination and free will. Um, what, uh, why we are the way that we are. Um, once you are saved, can you lose your salvation? Like all of those kinds of questions. Um, here's what I would say about just just the part that is relevant to our um, like our text itself. I um, when I think about 
like what Paul is trying to say here, this, and this is usually the, the crux of the, the debate, where, where Paul says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death came through sin, and so death spread to all because all have sinned. So this is where the, the debate revolves around. And um, there's a couple things I would ask you to anchor on when you're trying to come up with your own framework for what's going on. One is that uh, Genesis itself... Among the many curses it lists out for the consequences of Adam and Eve's sin, not one of them is, therefore, all your descendants forever are born into sin and will never be able to do anything right short of God's intervention. That never comes up in that story. Another part to think about is that in the narrative flow of the Old Testament itself, there is uh, this idea that... um, you know, you can actually choose to do the right thing. That's in fact part of the covenant that God made with Israel, that they actually have the choice. They are able in some way to be able to respond um, to God positively. Then there's also this, uh, this reality too. When you look at other texts in Paul's day that dare to imagine like the consequences of Adam and Eve's sins, what you get instead of this idea, this like fixed clear idea that uh, like theology of original sin, you actually get like a, a like an interesting tapestry or collection of perspectives. So one one example here is Paul is he's first starting from the premise that Christ is the answer to all of the problems that plague all of the peoples and all the people groups that exist in the world, and then he works backwards and draws a comparison between Adam and Christ, the one man and the one man. So there are other times though when the starting point, like the, the, the place that the author is starting from is different, and so who they go back and blame is different as well. So for example, Paul in First Timothy will say, I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. All right, so uh, ostensible sexism aside, the idea of like what you see going on here is Paul is working backwards from this problem where in the community, in the context that this letter occurs, there is a backdrop of women in particular who are, create, are causing a specific issue that is bringing harm to the community that he is writing this letter to. So starting from that premise of those women, he's like, all right, I got to reach back to the beginning. And this time women, the woman is going to be the contrast, the foil between the people that I'm describing now and uh, the people in the, this, the origin story. Similarly, there is a, there's a, a text in, uh, not in the Protestant Bible, but in the Catholic Bible, the text called Sirach, which was um, like, uh, within like a couple centuries of Jesus's day. Um, and it has a very similar line, drooping hands and weak knees, this is a proverb, come from the wife who does not make her, husband's ha- her husband happy, from a woman sin had its beginning, and because of her we all die. So, um, you know, what's interesting here too is uh, um, 
to blame your problems on your wife is a very Adam thing to do, ironically. That doesn't actually come up in this text. This is what happens when uh, the texts that we receive were largely written by men uh, and preserved by men. But again, the, the point, I mean, we could do discussions on all of these texts. The point here is just to show that um, this is actually the type of point that we talked about, um, that Justin Reed talked about a couple weeks ago, where this is an example of the Bible reinterpreting itself. There's no fixed understanding of like who's to blame for our uh, you know, plight in humanity from Genesis itself. What, it, what is the case is that each time a new writer or a new interpreter or a new reader revisits that text, they come with the problems that they're experiencing in the present day, and they're searching for meaning in that text and putting it on there. So that's where I would say, like, I, I would say that I would not actually put, uh, you know, personally put that much stock in, like, my understanding of the gospel hinging on my understanding of original sin. Um, Bible scholar Pete Enns, a friend of Spark as well, has said, the real problem for Paul is not that Jews failed to keep the law. The real problem is that all sin and all die, Jew as well as Gentile. That's the bigger picture that we're telling through here. The, um, the, and this, that is to say the problem runs deeper than you think it does, and the solution also runs deeper than you think it does. So here is, here's really, at the end of the day, the, like what we actually need, to, like, what the, like what matters in Paul's argument. Everybody sins, everybody dies, Jesus died and was resurrected, and everything is different. That is this ultimate story, the truth, the enduring truth that the Apostle Paul is trying to tell here. And I would actually say that when you look at that as the main focus, the solution that Paul puts forward is uh, it's breathtaking in how all-encompassing it is and how much hinges on Jesus' death and resurrection. So let's go through part of our text again. You'll see this contrast. So here's what Paul says. For if the many died through the one man's trespass, much more surely have the grace of God and the gift and the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the gift is not like the effect of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the gift following many trespasses brings justification. If because of the one man's trespass, death reigned through that one, much more surely will those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, just as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all, so one man's act of righteousness leads to justification for all. For just as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sin so through the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. That is, that's like a, a, a total shift of like, if you imagine all of the things that we have done to each other and to our environments and to our communities to destroy things from the way that they ought to be, Paul is presenting a full contrast to say that no, because of Jesus actually all of that will be undone. I actually read texts like this and then uh, Paul's corresponding argument that he makes very similar in 1 Corinthians where he says, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. And I think perhaps I had been thinking about salvation more narrowly than Paul does. And this is actually like reading these texts and really dwelling with them. 
has caused a lot of scholars uh, over the centuries to, um, to, for example, think that perhaps the scope of salvation is universal, where you would, you would have like our famous, uh, like one of the most famous Bible scholars of the 20th century called Bart said, I don't teach universalism, but I don't not teach it. And he said that in the, uh, like in the context of this, this text, which is like just a classic uh, academic equivocation. Uh, the, you know, the reality is like, I think there's a lot there in this text that we're reading to like really wonder, like, you know, perhaps I'm the one who has been shortchanging how far and all-encompassing um, and how universe-changing God's love is. And of course, I know that, I understand some of you are like, no, 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 you got to teach not universalism, multiversalism. Yes, I understand. That's how, that's how we should uh, think about it. The, um, the, the central question then that we end up with like, what do we do with this? What do we do with this understanding that it's because of Jesus, um, everything has changed about how we, who we think is in and who we think is out. Um, it asks, well, what will it take for all of us then to be the family this one family that Jesus is pulling the universe towards. And obviously, the answer is love. But it is a, a unique kind of love or a unique way of articulating that love that is in contrast to the ways that most of us practice love most of the time. So this is how, um, the, uh, this, this is, uh, how Paul talks about it here. He says, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Indeed, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, someone might actually dare to die. But God proves God's love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is a kind of love that is without condition. So you could imagine, and this is like we see it play out in other texts in the New Testament. If you have a Jewish community of Christians and a Gentile community of Christians in the church in Rome, there are many discussions around, okay, well, what do you, a Jewish Christian might ask? Like, well, what do you as a Gentile Christian need to do? What Jewish things do you need to do? to be a part of God's family. And there are, say, it works both ways. Like you could have a Gentile Christian in those communities asking like, what are the things you need to give up in order to like truly understand your place in God's family? And this is Paul saying, no, this is, we're not doing conditions here. It is not, once you do these things, then I can extend my acceptance of you. Then I can show love to you. It is to say, whether you do these things or not, whether it comes at personal cost to me or not, I will love you. That is the way loving sacrifice can make estranged and alienated peoples into one family. This is, uh, I think like often when we talk about like this kind of like self-sacrificial love, because it's like one of our most common experiences, we start from the, the premise of like, well, it's like I think about my love that I have like for my parents or if you have kids, like the love that I have for my kids. Uh, I actually think that that is, you can find a start from that premise. I actually think that's unhelpful for a few different ways. And I actually love how Paul um, and Jesus at times like draw a sharp contrast between that love that you feel like for your kids or for your parents and the love that he is talking talking about here. Um, that, and it starts from this perspective of being good to your family I don't know, doesn't mean much, like in the bigger picture of things. Hear me out. This is where 
It is so obvious in our culture where it is just like, it is taken as a given that uh, a true hero is one that will do anything for their child. These are like, there are so many stories out there and that we internalize where like we, we like these, many of these characters cannot be bothered to solve the problems around us until our daughter or our dog is like personally affected by the issue. Is that love? Is that heroism? Because that's definitely how we tend to talk about it. People will say, I'll do anything for my kids. To me, that's the most basic thing you can say. Of course you would. So tell me something interesting about like, how you choose to love, taking care of your kids. This is um, the, the, the way Jesus actually talks about it in the Sermon on the Mount and the way Luke records it in the Sermon on the Plain are actually very telling. This is how it uh, comes up in the Gospel of Matthew, same section where it's like, turn the other cheek, love your enemy. He says, is there anyone among you who, if your child asks for bread would give a stone or if the child asks for a fish would give a snake if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children how much more will your father in heaven give good things to those who ask him the sermon on the plane expands that that framework even more <clears throat> it says if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive payment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much again. Instead, love your enemies, do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, for God himself is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. That's the kind of love that it is going to take the church in Rome to get along with each other. In the coming chapters, we'll unpack this even more. We've got to sit with this tension for a long time. It is a central challenge that this community that, that Paul writes about is facing. The... Um, the, the kind of love that the Apostle Paul is talking about is one that goes beyond like the, what I think is like the nothing that's especially special about like a love that parents have for their, their kids. Happy Valentine's Day, by the way. Great, great message. Um, the, what he's going for here is like, start, let's start with, with like the way you understand like loving your family or your relatives or whoever. The kind of love that, for example, parents have for those children is actually deep and rich and nuanced, has all kinds of challenges that go with it. But as soon as we like, as soon as we step outside that circle of love, then all of a sudden we're more likely to start asking more self-oriented questions to evaluate the love you have in this relationship. Then you start asking those questions like, what's in it for me? Like, what am I, what am I getting out of this relationship? You start asking questions like, uh, does this bring me joy? You know, does this, is this relationship still bringing me joy? Because if it's not, then perhaps it's time to sever it, whatever kind of relationship that is. We ask ourselves, do the benefits outweigh the costs? And we say, like, what's the return on my investment? What's the ROI that I get out of this friendship, out of belonging to this group or this club or this team or this company or, this, or these uh, the, with my cousins or relatives or whatever? Those are the kinds of questions we ask, ask ourselves when we're not really in it for other people, when we're not in it the way Jesus is in it for this community in Rome. So I would say... You know, this, whatever it is that compels you to say, you know what, uh, it's not about 
what's in it for me. This relationship is valuable because of what I, what's in it for you. The same, t- like, say, the same love that you show to whoever it is in your life where you would say, uh, it's not about whether this brings me joy or not. It's about whether it brings you joy or not. Where you say, you're, you're not asking about do the benefits outweigh the costs. You're saying, what, what can I sacrifice? What cost can I bear for your sake? And it is to say, I don't care about the return on my investment. The love that I'm showing is worth it in and of itself because it's the right thing to do and it is valuable whether I get anything back in return. So whenever you are, whatever relationship you have with that framework, I would say sit with it and now show that kind of love to someone else's child or someone else's dog or someone else's nation, someone else's ethnicity, someone else's people group. And then you will begin to practice the kind of love that can unite all of God's family in Jesus the way Jesus intended. We're now gonna switch to our time together where we, as a community, as one family, uh, come together to, to dwell on and reflect on Jesus' death and resurrection and the force that that has in uniting us to belong to one table as one family together. As the tradition recorded in scripture shares, for in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples saying, take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them saying, drink this all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And as you saw in what we talked about today, everyone is part of God's family. Everyone is welcome to this table.